Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Grafted Life podcast. My name is Adam Ormord. It's great to be with you all, and I'm really excited to introduce to you a couple people who are going to join our recording today. Our special guest is Alan Fadling, and Alan is coming to us from Southern California, and you might know him as the leader, co-founder of the Unhurried Living Ministry, and we're going to hear from Alan more on that. Before we say hi to Alan, though, I'd like to introduce all of our listeners to a member of ESDA, a spiritual director, um, a coach, a life coach for leaders, and uh, really becoming a dear friend of mine, Stephen Humber. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Stephen lives in the Denver area, and Stephen just shared briefly just some of your background in ministry and who it is that you work with the closest. Yeah, I, um, yeah, so after I got done with seminary, I thought I was going to be working with um, uh, a nonprofit in Denver, and then that didn't work out, and I needed a job. So <laughs> I never thought about being in pastoral ministry, but I got a call from a church family in rural Kansas, and that ended up working out. So I was there for 11 years. Then I was on a church planting team in Omaha for another few years. And now I work for, um, well, a couple of things. I I uh, work for this uh, mission agency, so I interact with a lot of uh, folks that are discerning a call to long-term overseas work. Um, and then just the training and the care and the supporting global workers. Um, I also have an executive coaching business um, that I'm really, really enjoying. And uh, all of that came after um, a career in the Navy where uh, I I learned a lot about leadership. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so most of it the hard way. <laughs> mm. I'm so glad you're adding your voice, your questions, your experience to today's conversation, Stephen. Uh, you've also found your way into spiritual direction through all of this and a yeah. fairly newly trained spiritual director. So glad that you're part of ESDA, mm-hmm. part of this community. So why don't we go ahead and welcome our, our guest today, Alan Fadling. How are you, Alan? It's nice to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much for joining us. And we know, Alan, you are one half of what makes this ministry so special. Uh, introduce us a little bit to you and your wife, Your just some of your background, some of your background mm. in ministry. We'd love to hear a bit of your story of how you discovered, that together, maybe the two of you, uh, an unhurried life. Yeah, well, yeah, we started Unhurried Living about oh, seven or eight years ago, but really our journey uh, in this, what we would call the unhurried way of Jesus, began quite a bit earlier than that. Um, I'm in my young 60s now, but in my late 20s, um, I was a full-time pastor in a large Southern California church. I was a full-time student at a seminary in Southern California, and I was newly married. And it will not surprise you to hear that I was beginning to burn out in trying to do all of that. Um, And when you're burning out in your late 20s, that's not great pacing. You know, and I hit a a real crisis of ministry. Uh, I knew I couldn't keep doing what I was doing the way I was doing it for another few months, let alone another few decades. And it was at that time that God kindly brought along a few mentors 
who were living, uh, what, a deeply rooted life, um, a, a deeply abiding sort of life, and they were 10, 20, 25 years older than me. They weren't burning out, and I was, and I figured they knew something I didn't know. And I wouldn't have used the language of hurry or unhurry back then, but really that's what I was learning. I was learning to slow down from the ways that anxiety had been driving me, the ways that my deep thirst for recognition was driving me, my sense of having to do lots of things for God was driving me. And I began to learn that I, my life and my work were a gift to be received instead of a paycheck to be earned. And so little by little, uh, that began to change our outlook on life and on our marriage and on our work. And it was the, it was the spiritual practices of you know, spiritual formation, as Richard Foster uh, writes, wrote and writes about it, and as Dallas Willard wrote about it. That began very slowly in that kind of, you know, long obedience in the same direction, began to transform us. And um, I, I've been very grateful for the journey. Mm. Mm. You know, it strikes me you're talking about slowing down from and what you listed were a lot of inner interior um, desires, perhaps longings. Uh, yes. And so right off the bat, the conversation becomes less, you know, less about unhurried schedule, you know, um, mm-hmm. and more about an interior uh, way of being with God and with others and with yourself. Yeah, that I think is important because when we talk about hurry, we're, we aren't mostly talking about how full your calendar is or how long your to-do list, you know, is or how fast you're driving or anything outward. All those things matter, and you might decide you're doing too much, and you might want to deal with that. But really, when we talk about hurry, hurry is a matter of soul. Mm-hmm. It is about what's happening inside of you. And I have felt hurried on a day off when mm-hmm. I have nothing to do. So it's not it's not a factor of um, my uh, responsibilities or my tasks or my projects. It's about my uh, inner life. And so that's why I talk about dynamics like anxiety, which has Mm -hmm. been a lifelong challenge or a deep longing to be affirmed and recognized and appreciated. And then arranging my whole life to maximize people's positive response to me. All of that has been a kind of hamster wheel, Uh, you know, that, that no matter how fast I get that thing running, I'm just not going Anywhere. (laughs) Okay. The other thing that just strikes me right off the bat here is how quick you are to recognize these things. I'm guessing that didn't come right away. Okay. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the folks in your life who were a few years older than you, who journeyed with you on this long obedience in the same direction. Um, But uh, I guess my question is what were some of the warning signs back then you talk about burnout or, or recognizing, I don't know if I could make it decades. I might not make it months. Yeah. What were the warning signs or the alarm bells or those DEF CON? Okay, here you go, Stephen, Mr. Military. Some of those DEF CON warnings <laughs> in your yeah. life and ministry. What did it look like? How did you know? Well, 
So at that time, what I remember was I would come home from a long day, maybe half of it at seminary taking class and half of it doing my work as a college pastor in a local church. And I was coming home, going to our guest room, turning off the lights and laying on the couch, staring at the ceiling. That's not uh, a way to live, not day after day after day. So my emotional life was drained to just about the bottom. Uh, I was feeling physical symptoms of exhaustion. Uh, I was feeling a, like I said, a crisis of vocation. Uh, This cannot be the way ministry is supposed to work. Um, I'm doing a lot. I'm accomplishing a lot. I seem to be impressing a lot of people, and none of it seems to matter much. (laughs) So that, you know, that sense of meaning deficit um, was a big deal. And so what maybe another answer to that is that the gift these mentors gave me was a simple vision that I could live for the rest of my life. And it was just as simple as biblical invitations like, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And, you know, abide in me. What's interesting to me about that metaphor I've been thinking more recently is if you go to a vineyard here in California, and we have plenty of them, plenty of towns, plenty of regions, but When people go to a vineyard, they are excited about spring, maybe all the beautiful new green growth, you know, the pruning has done its work and now spring is here. Or the late summer, early fall harvest, you know, who couldn't be excited about that? You know, this is going to become wine. Can't wait. Be so much fun. Nobody talks about the mundane little spot on the vine where a branch and a vine connect. That is not impressive looking. But it is absolutely strategic to all the other things we're excited about. Mm-hmm. So there was that, what Dallas called indirection. There was that sense of the something I do that's rather invisible, that's rather every day, but that over time makes an immense difference in who I'm becoming and what I do and how fruitful all of that is. Yeah. Indirect. What are the little things? Hmm. Well, you mentioned Dallas a couple times now. Yeah. Besides, besides Dallas, uh, and and besides the Holy Spirit, who were some of your other guides in helping you plumb the depths here and understand really what was going on, the state of your own soul? Sure. Well, I would say early on, some of the authors, maybe many of us, have appreciated. I I discovered Henry Nowen and. I've got a three-foot shelf of, I think, every book he ever wrote I'm looking over at right now. And I just plowed through what he had to say. It mm. spoke to me. Mm. I, I discovered Thomas Merton, and about the time I was in this journey, his his journals had finally been allowed to be published. He put a 25-year moratorium on publishing them until you know after his death and all. His writings began to really uh, speak to me. And then I began to explore spiritual classics. Um, and so over here on my other side is a floor-to-ceiling, you know, bookcase of Desert Fathers on the top shelf and recent spiritual writers on the bottom. And so just reading through the centuries of wisdom and guidance and grace uh, that we have available to us, that began to speak to me, especially mm-hmm. in some moments where my journey became a little confusing, a little uncertain. And having wisdom that was not from now, not from here, 
not from my little neighborhood of the church, but from then and over there and from that bunch. Having a different perspective was often critical for me to make my way forward. Hmm. Yeah, was that an openness that you you had to nurture or would you say that you were an open person even before all of this, like in seminary? I think what I would say is I was in a very conservative setting early on. And I took to that because I liked the security that that seemed to give me. Um, and so my initial uh, world was rather narrow and small and it was a little box but there's something about a little bit of suffering, a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of uncertainty that will make you open <laughs> to mm. other possibilities. If what I have already doesn't seem to be working as well as I thought it would, then I might want to be open to other possibilities. And that's what I discovered as I went through some seasons where things grew dry or uh, my practices didn't seem to work the way I thought they were supposed to. And so being open to other ways of uh, connecting with God and listening for the voice of God and being responsive to God became very important for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I wouldn't say that's a natural thing for me, but it was a, a cultivated thing for yeah. me. I have, a, I have a little bit of a thought, Alan, just listening to you here. What, what were some of the first things that you noticed being really delightfully different as these things were having an effect in your life? Like what, what were some of the first things you noticed and you were like, I'm sure that it was really satisfying yeah. when that happened, but what was that like? Well, I would say one of the practices that I'd heard about and read about, but hadn't tried was the, you know, what Dallas called the queen of the discipline, solitude and silence, you know, retreat. I, we had plenty of retreats. They were just busy and noisy and lots of talking, uh, but some quiet and some alone, very little of that. And the delight was discovering that God wanted to be with me and that God made me first for relationship and not first to do a job for him in a church or somewhere else. And so discovering the delight of uh, being loved first and learning to love God back and then learning to live in a community of brothers and sisters who wanted to live that way too um, became incredibly life-giving. It changed how we saw, how we envisioned our ministry to, uh, in those days, you know, to just a hundred or so college students. But instead of a massively full calendar, we became a community, and we became people who shared our lives with one another, and when we shared difficult places in our lives that. Our busy program had not given us time to do, uh, but now we had, uh, in a sense, our practices had slowed us down, and we discovered how delightful it was to live in relationship with God and with each other. Uh, and I would, I'm, well, I wouldn't go back, but I would say because that was so solid and so good, we've continued to to seek to live that way, you know, since then. You're describing. Um Maybe maybe you realize you're describing it, or it's just so ingrained in you, but you're describing uh, Nowen's article, moving from solitude to community to ministry. And yeah, Stephen's going, yeah, yeah. Alan's going, yeah. This eight-page little article, so profound, so good, so beautiful. I yeah. can't uh, tell you how many times I've shared it. And yeah, it all starts with solitude. Um, 
And, you know, even just today, Alan, you sent out an email to those on your mailing list where you're talking about this idea of retreat and solitude. And you quoted another friend of yours named Elton Trueblood. I I have the feeling you have lots of friends, friends Uh that you may have never met, but dear friends indeed of your soul. And you introduced us to Elton Trueblood, a 20th century professor of philosophy and Quaker spiritual writer. And you you kind of described him as the Dallas Willard of former generations. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. How would you describe the impact Elton's writings had on you as a leader then who uh, needed to discover this new way of of living with God and serving God with God in the kingdom? Yeah. So, you know, he's another author who wrote a lot of books. And again, I probably have a three foot shelf of all of his writings, but those go back to as early as the 20s, 30s, 40s. He wrote up until I think about the 70s or maybe 80s he finished writing. But he was that same sort of Dallas-like person in that he was a philosopher, but he was also a very significant spiritual writer, a pastor type at heart, I think you could say. And it was his quotation about the need for regular retreat that really captured my imagination and really formed the heart of that post this week. Um, I first read that in his book, The Company of the Committed, which was published in 1961, the year I was born. Mm. And so to discover those lines, to hear him talking about a world 60 years ago, the concern about distraction, the concern about being too busy— 60 years ago, mm-hmm. and thinking, what would Elton think of our 2020 dynamic and reality? I think he would only be uh, more convinced of the importance of his counsel, which was to say, all of us who are very busy people uh, would benefit immensely from a day or part of the day a month where you simply go away to be in the presence of God. Not to plan a thing, not to strategize, not to solve a problem, but to be with God. And there's something about that over time, year after year, decade after decade, that changes you. I'd said to a coaching client just the other day, <clears throat> it was just the silliest thing, but I just I it just came to realize, you know, abiding works. It really, really works. When you learn to live your life in communion with God through Jesus and by the Spirit, when that begins to very gently, very consistently change who you are, it is fruitful. And it's fruitful in ways you cannot put into a nice, neat equation. It's just beautifully, mysteriously fruitful. Adam, I can't wait to listen to this podcast. When it's <laughs> yes. I see you trying to take notes now. Just forget it, Stephen. <laughs> I just stopped. I just stopped. I'm like, oh my word, um, <laughs> Alan. We uh, so we talked about spiritual disciplines a little bit, um, and it it seems like you know we'll be intentional about practice, learning about a discipline, practicing it. We're drawn to it. Um, we're we're messing around with it and. We can have an idea of the transformation that God is doing in our heart when we're doing that. But it always seems like God is up to some other things sometimes that we're not always aware of. And then there's like this surprise, like, oh, 
Have you ever noticed anything like that? Like you thought this was what was happening, and then you realize all of a sudden God was doing yeah. something completely. I different. think that is a really good question because I've come to believe that um, surprises are one of the best signs that God's doing something, uh, and it's not just your masterminded little plan. Uh, I always think that when a surprise crosses my path, there's some good evidence there that um, that go, that I'm noticing and um, seeing the the kind engagement of God uh, in my life or or in my work. And so I think for me, one of the one of the patterns I think has been really important because I work with a lot of leaders, perhaps like you all too, and with leaders, especially Christian leaders they often define or uh, understand their lives and their work in terms of their activities. So I do this and I do that, and their spiritual practices then become an activity, and they just have more and more and more activities. But I think one of the, one of the things to think about is there is, like breathing, there's activity and receptivity. And I think having practices that are purely focused on receptivity not doing a thing, planning a thing, achieving a thing, let alone earning a thing, um, but receiving something, being attentive to God, uh, hearing, listening um, as much as, at least as much as we speak, um, receiving at least as much as we give. There's a dynamic here little by little. We talk in our ministry a lot about how do you lead from overflow? Well, the genius of someone like Bernard of Clairvaux, he said, uh, you can be a reservoir or you can be a canal. If you're a canal, it comes right through you and goes on out. If you're a reservoir, you experience fullness, and then the overflow is what you give to bless others. You don't give at the cost of your soul. You give out of the abundance of your soul. I run into a lot of leaders who aren't learning how that works, and that's been one of our convictions, to help leaders Live and lead that way. Yeah. That kind of leads me to another uh, question I have about, you know, if if you've experienced some goodness around slowing down and being less hurried and this beautiful branch and vine picture that you were talking about, um, you want it for other people. <laughs> you just want other people to experience that. But it's not really something that you can always sort of convince somebody of it's like it can be a little mechanical sometimes coming at that like you know um but people will feel it like increasingly now with all these tired and stressed out leaders like they know something is off so um you shared a little bit of your story of what it was like starting out but for 2023 um for people who just know it's time to start slowing down, what? How can they take some baby steps at that so they don't like smash themselves? <laughs> it's like when you're in a car and you jam on the brakes, everything that's loose just goes flying, yeah. right? So how can you slow down in a way that doesn't create relational wreckage yes. and professional wreckage and all of that? I think that's a good way to ask it um, because. Uh, sometimes when you get in such an emergency condition, you don't have any choice but slamming on the brakes. And then there is a lot of damage. There is a lot of harm that's done. What I would say and what I do say to leaders when I'm encouraging encouraging them and and inviting them into this way is I usually say something like, um, start as small as you can. What is one small little thing you could do differently now? Would it be take five minutes to be quiet? 
each day, morning, midday, evening, whenever. Don't read. Don't look at your phone. Don't plan something. Don't solve something. Just be there for five minutes. See what happens to you. You'll probably feel really irritable or uncomfortable or like uh, an addict coming off of their favorite high. Uh, so the, the silence is not therapeutic. It's usually diagnostic. It's like notice what's going on inside of you. And just noticing may be as big, as big a gift as receiving, say, peace from five minutes of quiet, which you might also do. So uh, again, I like to think organically and think of this five minutes as something like a seed that you plant. It's not, it's not a one-time intervention thing. It's a process you enter into. If you plant a seed, we all know how seeds work. It's going to take time. You dig that up tomorrow, it's not going to be a plant yet. It's just going to be a seed still. It'll be wet and dirty, but it's still just a seed. But if you give that, that thing time, there's life in it. And over time, little by little, it will germinate and it will grow. And eventually, with patience, it will be a sufficiently mature plant of whatever kind of plant it is that it can bear the fruit yeah. it was meant to bear. Oh, man, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, the, it's just the... It, Maybe that's maybe that's part of the reason why it's hard for people to do is that there's no shortcut. No, there's no hack. There's no fast. There's no fast way. And uh, yeah, wow, that's really helpful. So Thank you, another way to say it would be, you have to learn to be unhurried in an unhurried way. You can't mm. create a life hack to be unhurried. It just that just doesn't work. <laughs> I have a friend who was listening who was listening to a book about solitude and silence and slowing down at one and a half. Of course. <laughs> As one does. And I was like I was like, friend, are you kidding me? Uh-huh. Oh, I get it. I do, I get it. <laughs> okay, so that brings me to your latest book. Mm. Alan. A year of slowing down. Daily devotions for unhurried living. And I guess my question is, do we really need a whole year to relearn this art of, of walking and living at the speed of God? Isn't there a quicker way for us to become an unhurried people? I mean, come no. on, 365 days. Yeah. Uh, well, why, why did you want to write this, uh, this devotional in this way for us? Well, there are more than one answer to that question. Mm-hmm. I hope they're interesting answers. But they're my answers anyway. Um so one, I think the genius of a devotional format, it is by design formational. Uh, mm. If you read it the way it's meant to be read, you will be engaging the topic for a full year. I can read just a normal old book, uh, you know, one and a half speed, two speed, two and a half speed. I don't know. I can read a book fast, but if I want to live a book, I've got to mm. take it slower. And uh, so this book was written as the third unhurried book, Unhurried Life, Unhurried Leader, and then, in a sense, the close of the trilogy was mm-hmm. a year of slowing down. It was written to be a formational companion to the other two. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is I am still learning how to live this unhurried way of Jesus. And so not as a discouragement, wouldn't it be nice to find a way of life that was so substantial and significant that you could engage it for the rest of your life? Yeah. And you'd still have things you were learning and still have new challenges that you were engaging. That's what I'm discovering in this way of Jesus. And my word for unhurried is just a way of other people would use the language of contemplative or prayerful or Mm. whatever. 
It's just a way of talking about being in the presence of God in my moments and being slow enough to notice that God's with me all the time. So all of that to say, that's why I wrote the book in the format that I did, that devotional format. Mm. You know, I love that. The, the, by nature, a devotional such as this is a is a formation. And anything we would read in, in that way slowly, you can't, I mean, you can't speed up the day. So if you are going to commit to it, you're going to walk the journey for a while. Um, I, I really appreciate that. I, I was uh, actually looking at my day one today and would love to have you just share a little bit of insight on this because I think it's a, it's very foundational to this discussion on um, on on uh, how to come into our days with God. You just simply talk about reimagining or rethinking or reframing a day as something that starts in the evening. Mm-hmm. It starts at the place of rest and recovery. Right, that's where it starts, and then then it, and then it, after you rest, then you move into work. Can you just expand on that just a bit? Like, why is that distinction so important here in this idea of rest and and um, kind of reframing our our days with God? Yeah, I I think I I first sort of became aware of this idea reading Eugene Peterson. I can't remember if it was under the unpredictable plant or it was working the angles, but he pointed out that in the Jewish mind, a day begins at sunset, right? We know this, not at sunrise. And, you know, for some of us, that just may sound like a technicality, you know, big deal, whatever, 24 hours is 24 hours. Except that in that rhythm, the day begins with 12, eight, whatever hours of rest and closes with work. And I began to realize that is a rhythm of grace. Mm. When you start with work and you end with rest, rest ends up sounding like something you have to earn or deserve. If you start with rest, the only conclusion you can come to is that rest is a gift. Mm. And that maybe if I begin my life remembering my life is a gift and restfulness is a gift, then I can also do my work, uh, realizing it too is a gift. So that difference, that change of rhythm, it's, you know, it's in the, the creation story. There was evening and there was morning, the first, the second, the third day. And so it's more metaphorical for me. I wouldn't say I specifically, when I hit five or six at night, I think, oh, hooray, my day's starting. Right. I don't think I do that, but that metaphor that my my life, uh, my work begins in rest like it were fertile soil. And then from that soil grows good work. But it grows in that grace, grace-oriented grace soil. Uh, I suddenly then realize rest is something I'm given as a gift. You know, humanity, we come along in the creation story on day six and our first full day, Sabbath. Like, what do we need to rest from? What did we do? We just got created. How exhausting can that be? Um, and and so God doesn't rest because God's wiped out, and nor do we have to wait mm. till we're wiped out to rest. Wow. We start with rest, and from that place of abundance and fullness, we engage our lives and our work from a much different place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God doesn't rest 
because God's wiped out. And I love this uh, uh, just way of thinking about this, that if we, you know, if we think about our work coming first, then yeah, it, it does come down to a question of whether or not we think we deserve to rest, right? Whether we earned it. Mm-hmm. And it would also be the first thing to go if we think um, there's more work to be done, more more interior hurry that we need to uh, prove some yeah. things to ourselves or to others or to God. And uh, again, just, yeah, the metaphorical imagery of thinking this is gift, this comes first because it's gift, and then life flows out of that, life and, and, and life with God, work with God. Yeah. So thank you. I just some something so simple and I really do think it will it has a profound impact yeah. on on this unhurried soul. It's so. it's one of those simple paradigm paradigm changes. Yeah. Um it 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 is so subtly simple. Um but those are often the insights, you know, that will like a seed really bear remarkable fruit if we'll stay with it. Hmm. Yeah. And you also talk about how it would alleviate perhaps the sense of needing to numb away the day. Yes. Because it's a new day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we We get to start with rest today. We get to start with the mercies of God that are new every, every day. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who need to hear that as well. It makes an immense, yeah, it makes an immense difference. Um, Mm -hmm. The reason I think we have so much numbing is because we have so little rest. Mm -hmm. We really don't know very well how to rest. We have a remarkable work ethic. We have a very poor rest ethic. We don't see rest as important. If you were to put a metaphor up for rest, it would be the word work with a red line through it. That's about as robust as most of our visions of rest is. It's not a thing. It's a nothing. Mm. Mm. That's not That's not how it works. I'll say more about that. So we tend to see rest as negation. <clears throat> You're not getting anything done. You got to recharge the batteries, which is to say rest is utilitarian. You rest only as long as you need to till those batteries are recharged. And mm-hmm. okay, now we can get right back out there and work. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can live that way if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you might find that it's more fun, it's more life-giving to, to live and lead from a place of fullness, of restfulness, of joy, of peace, all of which are gifts to be given and received. You can't earn peace. You can't earn joy. You know, the whole um, grace is not opposed to effort, just opposed to earning insight. Um, well, how do you receive grace? Well, you receive grace by being in that posture of recognizing none of this can be earned. I, I simply need to be someone receiving the generosity of God so that I can be a blessing to others. It's the whole Abraham uh, you know, calling. I'll, I'm, I'll bless you. You will be blessed, and you'll be a blessing. That, I think, has always been God's way, and the way— the way you experience blessing, at least the way blessing begins, is in the presence of God. And then it gets multiplied as you share it with others. A lot of Sometimes we're trying to bless others first out of our mostly empty cup, 
and we're finding we're running out of gas and we're a little resentful that they're needing so much blessing. You know, Alan, as I hear you say these things, I'm I'm just I'm I'm getting this little scary reality like thing in my head. It's like this whole concept of performance and achievement and accomplishment and is so opposed to this idea of rest. Like it feels like a power principality kind of idea. I mean, this is, it feels like a warfare kind of thing yeah. almost. I remember being, being raised on this idea that work is good and play must be earned. Mm, yeah. So now play's not, play's not necessarily rest, it's not the same idea, but uh, this is just everywhere that you are what you do, you are what you accomplish, and all the comparisons that go with that. And this is an invitation to a completely different way of life. It is. That's a, wow. what, that's, you've said it really well. Uh, I really do think it's, it's implicit in the message of the gospel. If we are indeed saved by grace through faith, um, then grace is not just a door that I step through to enter this life. Grace is every single step I take in this life. And uh, I, I've been thinking recently about you know Paul's counsel to Timothy. He tells Timothy to grow in grace. What I begin to ask is, well, how do you do that? How does that actually work, to grow in grace? that I thought grace was just a thing you got, and now you have it, and great. Let's move to the next uh, insight. But I think you grow in grace by growing in your awareness that, that God is generous, and you need that generosity every single step of the way, that maybe Jesus is right when he says, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing. The thing is, apart from him, I've been very busy very often. But that's not the same as bearing fruit that lasts. Yeah, yeah. It, it's reminding me of the phrase in uh, in the message in Matthew 11, this, like, uh, the, uh, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? So Jesus isn't inviting them to a retreat. He's inviting them to a way yeah. of living. This, this idea of unforced rhythms of grace, um, this whole idea of being yoked, an easy yoke kind of life. Oof. Man. Yeah, it fits really well as one of his insights. Hmm. Okay, so both of you have worked with a lot of leaders and coaching and um, high capacity. And uh, we, we talked about before we started this recording that it would be easy for some people listening to this to think, oh, that's a, a Western culture problem or that's a mega church mentality problem where we kind of know almost like the 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 dangers of the pressure cooker of that kind of a setting yet we see this all over the world mm-hmm. we see this in rural communities smaller churches larger churches how, how as you've worked with people alan what are some of the areas of resistance that you hear they're bringing, you know, to this idea of unhurried rest. Uh, maybe these, this is resistance that they are themselves feeling or resistance that they're perceiving from their communities, from their churches, right? As yeah. you're trying to bring them into these intentional steps into being unhurried. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, you might imagine uh, that it's mostly a Western problem. 
Uh, it's mostly a first world problem. It's mostly a modern problem. But in my readings, I've read language about hurry from most of the centuries of the last 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a human mm-hmm. problem. Uh, it is related to our uh, attempt at independence that kind of lies at the heart of an unholy independence that lies at the heart of our human challenge. And so, you know, I've I've shared ideas like this um, I shared once with a group of bishops in northern India, and there, their resistance didn't look at all like American resistance. For them, for example, when I talked about Sabbath, that sounded like an invitation to laziness to mm. their ears. Mm. You would take a whole day and not accomplish anything for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. You would not do the work of ministry on that day. How can you call yourself a faithful Christian? I would just say, well, when Jesus withdrew to lonely places to pray, was he obeying the Father's will or disobeying the Father's will? And I want to say there's something in this pattern of Jesus that Luke reports that could very well be a facet of our own discipleship to him. He's a master. He's an absolute master, and he knows he knows how to produce in three and a half years more than I have in now 40 years of ministry. So in that north northern India setting, it took us a long time to get to the difference between laziness and God-given rest. And they finally caught it. It took a long time. But there was a cultural resistance that's just like our cultural resistance, but different. Uh, I've been in a lot of Latin American settings, and in many of them, they are very communal settings. And so the idea, for example, of following Jesus' pattern of withdrawing to lonely places seems not just impossible, it sounds immoral. Like you're not going to be available to people all the time? How could you possibly do that? And so again, I just want to say, well, I think Jesus, who lived in a communal culture, often withdrew to lonely places in such a way that his disciples couldn't find him. Why in the world would he do that? Except maybe he knew that he did not want to be named by the crowds. He wanted to keep remembering that he's named by his father. You are my beloved son. I am so pleased with you. Um, we need to hear that, and mostly we learn to hear that in places of quiet and places of rest. When we're not doing anything to impress God or doing anything that would sort of disappoint God, we're just being. And God is just being who God is, which is loving and gracious and merciful. Thanks. Thanks for sharing those insights. And of course, here in the West, the resistance is strong. Yes. And it sure uh, is. In our churches. And again, it's not always just the, the leader themselves, but it is a, it's a perception uh, that they would think their community might see them a certain way, right? And that does come back to some of the hurriedness of their soul. Yeah. So again, like you've got to get off the hamster wheel somehow. <laughs> You're going to have to take a step, uh, learn a new pace, begin a new pace. Um, you know what? That's the name of a new ministry that you and Jim are launching, Pace, the Pace program. Love the name, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Love to have you share with our listeners, what is this PACE program? How can people learn about it? How can they join? 
And mm-hmm. how, how would you um, want to invite people into a different pace? Yeah, so I, I love the name too. You know, it doesn't stand for anything. It's not an acronym, just the word pace. Because we, we use that language a lot, actually. We, mm-hmm. we say that the kingdom of God moves at the pace of grace. It moves at the pace of peace and of joy, which are a different pace than some of the cultural paces that surround us. So PACE is going to be a 21-month community. Uh, There'll be five retreats here in California. We realize that you learn these things best in community over time. And so this is the, we've been looking forward. We've been doing this kind of a cohort um, training for nearly 30 years now in the organizations we've been part of. And we just know how this kind of a, a getaway, a chance to withdraw from your normal patterns, to be with a community of like-minded people. But essentially, we want to share um, what we've been learning about doing uh, life this way and and doing our work this way, whether that work is in you know religious organizations, churches, and otherwise, or whether that work is in businesses or education or government or wherever you happen to be planted. How can you follow? The unhurried way of Jesus, as you know, as it's kind of been been clear in our conversation, it's not a quick fix. It's not a life hack. It's a process you enter, which is why I think these kinds of designs, a cohort design, is such a genius model, because there's there's engagement and interventions over time. We keep revisiting things, and so you know, we'll talk about the ideas in our five books about living unhurried and and learning to to live in that pace. We'll talk about how to live and teach uh, for transformation and not just for information. Some of our some of our training models are sort of the student as information container. And so, you know, dump as much in as you can and now they've learned. Oh, we all know, I think by experience that what you you, you haven't learned something until you've tried it on and you understand how it works. That'll be a real focus. We won't talk about solitude. We'll practice solitude. And then we'll talk about it a bit. We won't We won't just teach, you know, 17 spiritual practices and say, you ought to go home to your busy life and figure out how to do that on your own. We will live that way together. So we're really excited. We're calling it a uh, certificate in leadership and soul care. And that intersection has been very important to us over time. Leadership development, soul care sometimes in some settings get separated. And so if you're into leadership development, well, then you love those authors and those conferences, and you have that kind of a pace of life. But if you like soul care and you care about that, well, then you like those authors and you go to those conferences and you have that vocabulary. And it it doesn't have to be that way. I think we intuitively know that spiritual formation, spirituality, the contemplative life is the beating heart inside a vital, vibrant mission, ministry, work, leadership. And so that's going to be the spirit of of this training. And we're really excited about it. We had to pause something like this just before COVID or right at the beginning of COVID, like most of us did, because we simply couldn't uh, continue doing that. But this will be an in-person experience with some Zooms in between to, to create continuity. Uh, and practically speaking, you can learn the details more if you just go to our website, unhurryliving.com slash pace. Just that simple word. And there's a lot of good information there, uh, and there are ways to 
you know, learn more about what we're doing. Thanks for sharing that, Alan. Thank you so much. Stephen, thank you for joining us for this conversation. I'm going to ask you one last question, Alan. Uh, someone were to ask you today, hey, what is the goal? Why? What's the ultimate goal of living an unhurried life or to borrow the term ruthlessly eliminating hurry from your life? What's the goal? Why? Yeah. Yep. Well, it's not a it's not a spa for the soul. It's not a self-indulgent, self-serving sort of thing. It's so that we could live the great commandment more fully. The great commandment has not changed in centuries nor in millennia. It's still, as it always has been, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our minds, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. You cannot do that in a hurry. Love is patient, as Paul said. And patient is, uh, is to me, it's a synonym of unhurried. Love is unhurried. And I'm just finding I am better living a life of caring for the concerns of others when I slow down inside mm -hmm. than when I am frantically trying to get to the next thing on my list. Mm. Mm. Well, that's a True Blood quote you shared with us today, Elton True Blood. A person who is always available is not worth enough when they are available. Ouch. Yes. <laughs> right? But it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for answering the call years ago. Thanks for taking the journey years ago. Thanks for making yourself vulnerable. Uh, and, and, and I, and I heard in all of this and ask a willingness to ask for help. <laughs> you had to reach out. You had to reach up. You had to reach out. You had to admit, I need a better way of life, a better way of doing this. I think that's important for a lot of people to hear as well. And Alan, would you, uh, would you just close our, our conversation in prayer? And sure. I, I don't know who's going to hear this conversation, how f far down the road they'll hear this, who knows what kind of shelf life this conversation will have. Sure. But I do trust the Holy Spirit will be going with us in, the, in these words and over these digital airwaves and, and praying that people who hear this will hear an invitation into an unhurried life. Yeah, let me uh, let me do that. Lord, thank you for your kindness, your grace in our lives. Thank you for your unhurried way with us. You do not rush past us. You don't look at your watch when we come to meet with you. You uh, have all the time that we need to hear our hearts and to hear our concerns. And so my prayer, Lord, is that your empowering presence, your measureless generosity, and your great goodness might be with us, seeking us before ever we seek you. And may that grace bear the fruit of deep well-being, freedom from anxious care, and a soul at rest in the presence of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you all for listening uh, to the Grafted Life podcast. I can't wait to be back with you again in the future. Until then, grace and peace, everyone. <laughs>